questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Last week we aired a classic interview with Lauren Spencer about official top-secret U.S. Army Air Force interview transcripts and notes he received from the late Matilda O'Donnell McElroy. Six years later, Lawrence Spencer returns to share with us supplemental information that expands on the original material from the 1947 interviews. It's quote-unquote new in the sense that he has been made aware of a lot of evidence that verifies and expands upon information provided by the interview transcripts. Greetings, I'm your host, Mel Fabregas. And if you're new to the Veritas family, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, just click on the subscribe button. And don't forget to visit the Veritas store for MMS, hemp oil, pure organic sulfur, and much more. And if you want to get in touch with me, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. Com. And to tell us more, when we have his bio on our website, Lawrence Spencer joins us from Georgetown, Texas. Hello, Lawrence, and welcome back to Veritas. How are you? I'm good, Mel. Thank you and uh, for having me. It's delightful to hear from you, as always. My pleasure. I remember our three-hour interview. We, we didn't expect to go three hours, but the material kept going and going, and we decided to expand it. But you're back six years later. You contacted me a few weeks ago. And I've always wondered if you had more information about the interview and Matilda O'Donnell McElroy. Why now? Why six years? And first of all, why you? Again, why you? Why are you the one receiving this information? Well, as uh, I explained in our first interview, uh, I was contacted in 1997 uh, through the mail by uh, a retired Army Air Force nurse, Matilda O'Donnell McElroy from Ireland, who sent me a large envelope containing two letters, um, a lot of handwritten and typed notes prepared by her, uh, as well as a copy of what she told me were the original typed transcripts of an interview that she did over a period of about six weeks in 1947 with the pilot of the crashed flying saucer from the Roswell, uh, famous Roswell crash. Um, at that time, she was uh, a surgical nurse with the 509th Bomb Group uh, Air Force Base in Roswell, New Mexico. That's the same Air Force Base, from which the bombers that bombed Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Japan, were dispatched during uh, at the end of World War II. Um, the the craft was recovered by personnel from the Roswell Air Force Base. Um, she accompanied the security office, the security officer rather, at the base to the site of the crash and was asked to go because uh, in case medical assistance was provided. When they arrived at the site of the crash, um, she was able to sense communication from the one surviving passenger of the craft, which which it turned out to be the pilot. Uh, No one else was able to sense any communication from the pilot, which was all telepathic, of course. So she was permanently assigned to accompany the uh, the pilot at all times thereafter. Uh, and as you will hear in our first interview, when you read the book, you'll understand that the reason that she was able to communicate telepathically with the pilot is that she had been previously a member of the same domain expeditionary force uh, of which the pilot of the Craft, whose name is given as Errol, A-I-R-L, um, was a member. So, uh, in part, the Roswell crash uh, and the subsequent interviews given between the pilot and the nurse were, um, in, in a way, a kind of a forwarding of the communication of information from the domain to other members of the domain, of which there are at least 3,000 or more, 
uh, forwarding of, uh, of information to those members of the domain on Earth uh, through these interviews with the nurse. She sent the interviews to me after a very brief discussion I had with her on the phone 10 years before, in, uh, in 1997, uh, when I was researching material for the first book I wrote, which was called The Oz Factors. She didn't have any information to give me at that time, but she was interested in, in my book. I sent her a copy of it at her request, and she read it, and 10 years later, she sent me this information not long before she passed away at the age of 83. So, um, when you read, ironically, uh, the time it takes to discuss the book uh, on a show like, like this actually takes longer than it does to read the book in a way, because you can read the entire book in, in about five hours. It's not terribly long. Um, if you if you don't include the footnotes, if you include the footnotes, then it's probably about 12 hours. Um, but in our discussion in, on February 8th, in 2013, we discussed kind of the, the highlights of the story behind how I received the material and the basic content of the book. So in this interview, um, I wanted to try to skip over uh, all of that and discuss some more of the more relevant recent research information that's come to my attention um, from a number of other researchers, uh, many of whom were have been guests on uh, the Veritas radio show, yep. and with whom I, you know, I know you know them, and many of your listeners will know them. But uh, the ongoing research done by these people over the intervening six years uh, sheds a lot of um, new light on the material contained in the interviews. It corroborates and verifies a lot of the information given uh, by the, the pilot and expands upon some of the core uh, concepts and, and information contained in those interviews. So I thought it might be interesting to your listeners to uh, kind of get up to speed on what's occurred in terms of current research over the last six years that brings, uh, makes a lot of the information in the, the interview transcripts more relevant uh, to what's happening today. Before we begin with the supplemental information, I just want to get a, a few things out of the way. And by the way, I don't mean any disrespect by me asking you these questions, but I just want to be very clear because through the years I've received a number of emails and I want you to have an opportunity to respond to those those issues. For example, one person said that you are a Scientologist, that you wrote a book just like L. Ron Hubbard did. Uh, can we put this to rest? And I have a couple of questions after that, but I'll go one by one. Okay. Um, no, that's it's, it's true in part. There's a kernel of truth in that. I was involved in Scientology in the early 1970s. Uh, haven't been for a very, very long time. Uh, never written anything like uh, what L. Ron Hubbard would have written, um, and certainly have no interest in doing so. Uh, in this particular case, the interview transcripts and letters and so forth, as I mentioned, were received by me directly from the nurse and published verbatim um, without any alteration. So uh, as far as the authorship of the Alien Interview book, the author is uh, Nurse Attila McC McElroy. Um, who passed away at the age of 83. Okay, so no Scientology-related writings in this book. Second, this book is not fiction. This is not something that you came up with. These are indeed factual letters that you received from the subject Matilda O'Donnell McElroy. Yeah, as far as uh, I or many, many other hundreds of people who have been looking into this material since it was published um, in, in, 19, in 2008, about uh, 11 years ago, no one has been able to verify or refute as whether or not the material is, is factual. Um, nor can anyone verify whether or not the person of Matilda McElroy was an actual person. 
that has to do largely with um, what apparently occurred at the uh, end of these interview period after the Roswell crash was that the personnel who were stationed at the Roswell base who had any interaction with the event were uh, dismissed from duty and relocated and given uh, secret persona. Their identities were changed and went in, were sent into uh, a witness protection program. Uh, the nurse actually mentions that. Lots of people who have researched this have discovered uh, that there were several other nurses and other medical personnel as well as, well as military personnel stationed at the Roswell base and apparently all of whom disappeared. Uh, subsequently, I've been told by uh, a number of other people who were either first or second-hand witnesses to the events that their lives were threatened by the military immediately following the incident. And uh, in some cases, people were killed uh, to silence them from revealing what they knew. Uh, there are many, many other people who have written books um, who are truly authorities on the subject of Roswell. Dr. Stanton Freeman is probably one of the foremost of that group. Um, so as far as the actual events of the Roswell crash itself, um, I've, that's been pretty thoroughly researched and documented by other people. Uh, I've had no part in that because it's not an area of expertise. Uh, the only reason I published the material when I received it from the nurse is that after having spent six or eight months researching it myself uh, to see if, whether or not I could verify the material in the book, I decided there was enough credible information that could be documented. Uh, I, I put the footnotes where appropriate in the book um, based on research I found by others and uh, data available on Wikipedia that anybody can read for themselves as to uh, the fair, verifiable incidents and personnel that she describes who were uh, a witness to the events at that time. But since Roswell has been probably the most thoroughly covered up uh, incident in the history of UFOs, uh, it was the basis for the, the foundation of the Majestic 12 organization by President Sherman who was basically charged with the responsibility to keep UFO activity uh, secret from the public. Uh, as far as I know, that goes on um, to this day. So, um, unfortunately, nothing about Roswell, as far as I know, except by anecdotal uh, information from first and second-hand witnesses and or circumstantial evidence uh, revealed by numerous researchers, no one can really truly verify that this UFO crash actually ever occurred. Don't you find it interesting that this event allegedly happened in 1947, but we actually didn't hear more about it until 1978, if my memory serves me correctly, through, as you said, Stanton Friedman. He was the one who shed some light on that event again, theoretically. Could this have been a third party, perhaps a SIO, perhaps somebody from the government who sent these letters to you in order to continue perpetuating this event? I'm not saying that it's true or it's not. I'm just trying to find the possibilities. Yeah, that, my first um, suspicion when I received the information, although I had spoken to the nurse briefly 10 years before on the phone for 15 or 20 minutes, which is the only reason I gave any credibility to the, the possibility that the documents were factual. Um, and it wasn't until I had researched it intensively for several months thereafter that I decided it was worth publishing. But my first thought when I received this envelope alleging that these were original transcripts from the interviews, they certainly appeared to be authentic, but I'm no expert. Um, one of the things that the nurse mentions repeatedly is that there were quite a number and variety of military and civilian intelligence personnel present at the Roswell base during the, the time of the interviews, and a lot of very high-ranking military personnel from the Army, Air Force, 
so on and so forth, um, in attendance. Uh, and as many other people have revealed over the years, um, uh, the order of magnitude and thoroughness and uh, the prolonged extent of the cover-up of, of this incident um, almost demonstrates by itself that there's an agenda, if, if only to cover it up and keep it secret. But there may, as you suggest, be other agendas too. So when I first received the, the documents, I thought, well, you know, I'm being trolled. Somebody's sending this stuff to me. Um, and, you know, I have no way of authenticating it and so forth. So you know, I was very, very reticent about it for, for many months. I didn't tell anybody about it. Um, and But I did think it deserved inspection and ratification, which I, I did the best I could to, to do that. So the, the current form of the book, which is uh, which I published originally in 1988 as a printed book and also as a free PDF to make it available over the Internet to anybody who might be interested, uh, proved to be uh, a good decision, I think, because many, many millions of people around the world uh, have read the book. Uh, it's been translated into 14 different languages by volunteers. Uh, I, I never hire anybody to do any of that sort of thing. I don't have the resources to do that. Um, the book has been translated into uh, or made available as an audio book in, in Spanish and English. Um, and there are several other versions of the book that are more um, detailed in terms of uh, readability from a, a researcher or a study point of view. So my representation of the material is only that this is exactly what I received from the nurse, um, and I published it letter for letter as I received it. Um, it's, it's, I didn't write any of it. None of it is my material except to the degree that I own the copyright for it. But in every other way, it's, it's free and available on the internet for anyone to, to read or think or do with uh, whatever they might do with it. Uh, my personal opinion is um, that people should study the material, they should examine it, and they should make their own decision about it, one way or the other. Um, it contains lots of very startling, dramatic information uh, uh, that I've never read anything like, and most other people who have discussed it with me, I've talked to hundreds and hundreds of people, I've done probably uh, 60 radio shows, interviews over the years. Um, everyone has uh, a very strong feeling about it, one way or the other, usually kind of a visceral uh, feeling as to whether or not the information resonates with them personally. Uh, a lot of people are very deeply impacted by the information in the book. Um, and others have no interest in it, as, to, as should be expected. And by the way, let me just clarify that everybody who listens to this show knows that I am not a type of person that tries to bring people here to debunk anybody. We just don't believe anything. Also, we don't want anybody to believe. I want them to do their own research. At the same time, I still want to discuss all the material because it's up to us to do with that information as we please, just like going to a restaurant buffet. You choose what you like and what you don't like, just leave it behind. But that being said, and I appreciate that you put all the cards on the table, the expansion, the supplement that you're going to bring us, bring to us tonight before that, there are a few images of what seems to be an Army Air Force officer or a person is this the image that you used on the book? Is that Matilda or is that somebody else? Also, I'm using a, an image that I found on the internet of that alleged person who seems to be going through a light detection test in the 1940s. Is this the person or are these pictures that you found? Um, those are pictures that I found during my research of the book. Uh, when I published the book and subsequently when I put together a website for the book sometime after. Um, there, I found uh, quite a few different images on the internet of 
posted by people who alleged that the person shown in their photograph was the nurse uh, from Roswell. And I found as many as five different pictures of people who were supposedly nurses at the Roswell base during that period. Um, the, the image that I chose from the five or six that I found, I thought was best suited to the, uh, you know, as a photograph for the cover of the book. It was the highest resolution picture uh, I could find for publishing purposes. But there's no way to authenticate who that person actually is. Um, and in fact, of the other five or so nurses uh, that I found photographs of on the internet, the only one of those had a name associated with it, and it wasn't Matilda McCarroll. Um, the, uh, one thing I'm very positive of is that the Matilda McElroy name is a fictional name given to her either by the military or by herself to hide her real identity, which is typical of a witness protection program procedure. But no, it's uh, there's so many people have asked me, well, you know, why don't you uh, do a lot of research and find out search for family members of this nurse and so on and so forth. And people who have actually done that, people with the resources to do that, have actually gone out and done research in the field and they've gone to, uh, you know, the, uh, the county facilities in Los Angeles, to the university, they've gone to Ireland to uh, investigate her alleged burial place and the place where she and husband, her husband stayed. Uh, before their death, uh, and on and on and on, and all the reports I received back from these people were they could they couldn't find anything. I think no physical evidence. Give us a quick summary of your conversation with the alleged Matilda O'Donnell McElroy, McElroy on the telephone. Well, uh, I called her kind of on a, a lark. Uh, I was given a phone number by the editor of my my book, Carol South, who's since passed away from breast cancer. Um, she said, well, why don't you call this person? They might know something about UFOs. Or, and I wasn't researching UFOs. I've never been particularly interested in UFOs. I don't believe in it per se. I've never seen one. Um, you know, it's sort of, I have a, a cultural belief, the way most people do, I suppose. Um, so I called the phone number, and this lady answered the phone, and I introduced myself and I told her I was researching this book, and what the book was about fundamentally. And she said, uh, I don't have any information that I can give you, um, but your book sounds interesting and would you please send me a copy when you're when it's finished? So I did that some months later and totally forgot about it because she didn't have anything to tell me uh, and didn't hear anything further from her for 10 years uh, from Ireland. At the time I spoke to her on the phone, she was living in uh, near an Air Force base in Montana. Uh, the address of that location is published in the book, as well as her address uh, in Ireland. And so that's all I know now. That's fine. Let's begin with the supplementation that you not uncovered, but you've uh, actually gathered. Let's begin with the all life forms are is bees. I S hyphen bees. Is that how you say it? Yeah, I S. Um, I, I think it's called or pronounced is B. Right. Spell is dash B. Um, one of the one of the things that uh, is revealed by the the pilot early on during the course of the interview uh, to the nurse is that that she personally, the pilot, considers, uh, and I quote here her statement. All sentient beings are immortal spiritual beings. This includes human beings. For the sake of accuracy and simplicity, I will use a made-up word. So that's the acronym, is B. Immortal, spiritual, and then B-E for beings. Yes, I-S-B-E. Because the primary nature of an immortal being is that they live in a timeless state of is. And the only reason for their existence is that they decide to be. So it's is B. No matter how lowly a station in society every ISB deserves and the respect and treatment that I myself would like to receive from others, each person on earth continues to be an ISB whether they are aware of the fact or not. 
so again, that's the personal statement or an opinion sentiment given by the pilot uh, early on in their conversation. Um, so when you read the book, you you discover that the pilot of the craft is from a civilization that the nurse refers to as the domain, for lack of a better word, uh, could be called any number of things. It could be called the realm or the territory, uh, what have you. But apparently the domain is a civilization that's existed for trillions of years. Uh, it's probably not located in the physical universe as we understand it. As the pilot says, uh, they ask her to identify where the domain was located on a map of the universe, and she said it doesn't, it's not on a map of the universe, that we don't have maps here on Earth that would uh, locate it. Uh, the other important thing is that the domain personnel uh, in this particular craft were not biological entities. Uh, rather than having a biological body, uh, they occupy what she, the uh, pilot, refers to as a doll body. Um, they operate in space. It's made from a kind of, uh, it's a small, fragile, three-foot-tall um, body made of, have, of fabric for skin uh, through which they can directly connect themselves to the spacecraft. Uh, officers, like the pilot, communicate telepathically and navigate through space using telepathic control of their spacecraft. So in other words, they're navigating using thought. They don't have any motivational um, energy uh, or any other external device through which to navigate in space. Uh, the bodies have no mouth, no ears, no nose, uh, and does not eat or sleep. So that's one of the things that keeps coming up recurringly in information I've read subsequently by other researchers of um, Roswell and UFOs in general is that the idea that uh, spacecraft could be operated uh, telepathically. And apparently uh, DARPA and other space agencies have been doing research which has enabled pilots uh, uh, to manipulate uh, drones or spacecraft or uh, you know airplanes and so forth uh, directly using mental communication, which uh, may or may not be um, a derivative of the original spacecraft that was supposedly reverse engineered after the Roswell crash. There was an excellent book written some years after the Roswell craft by a uh, Army colonel, Dr. Philip Corso. I'm pretty sure you've interviewed him. I wish, uh, I wish, but no. He okay. passed away before I started this platform. Okay. Well, uh, are you you're familiar with his book? Oh, I have it, of course. Yes, all of it. His book is The Day After Roswell, at least one of his books. Um, in which he he says that he received some components of the UFO spacecraft, which were given to him, and he was instructed to uh, hand those remnants of the craft out to various corporations in an attempt to reverse engineer the technology. Uh, the pilot of the craft, during the course of these interviews, tells the nurse that that she might uh give this uh, the information contained in the body of the craft or the recovered remnants of the crash might be useful um, to humankind if it were reverse engineered uh, so you put those two pieces together and that makes the likelihood of what dr or what um, Colonel Corso was talking about more more likely and kind of fits together with what's in the interview transcripts, um, which is pretty interesting, especially when you read um, Colonel Corso's book. He goes into quite uh, an extensive amount of detail as to about what the, the nature of the reverse engineering and the byproducts of modern technology uh, have become. 
and their influence on our civilization, which is rather extensive, I would say. When you say Nurse Matilda belonged, maybe I didn't understand correctly, when you say that Nurse Matilda belonged to that expeditionary force, what do you really mean by that? Well, in the course of the interviews, um, the pilot discusses with the nurse the fact that the domain expeditionary force um, of which she was a part originally uh, landed on the Earth about 8,500 uh, B.C., uh, about 10,000 years ago, uh, in the Himalaya mountains. And they set up a, a base under the top of one of the mountains in the Himalayas, protected by uh, a kind of a force screen or electronic force. Um, and although the, their mission hadn't anything to do with Earth in particular, they have been using the solar system and the, particularly the asteroid belt and the backside of the moon for a very, very long time as part of their base of operations um, as a kind of um, a, a waypoint uh, uh, between where they're coming from and where they're going to in their invasion process. They're, they're an invasion force. It's a military activity. Um, but while they were uh, entrenched in this mountain in the Himalayas, their force of about 3,000 personnel were attacked and destroyed in a surprise attack by the existing governmental space force uh, for this galaxy and other parts of uh, space surrounding our galaxy, which the pilot refers to as, as the Old Empire. And she says that's not the actual name, um, but it's a nickname given uh, to the conquered civilization by the domain forces, which at that time served as the seat of central government for this galaxy and other adjoining regions of space. Uh, the planets of that government were located in star system in the tail of what is what we call the Big Dipper constellation, but she doesn't say which stars specifically. So apparently, Nurse Matilda, as a Nisbi, as a spiritual entity, was a part of that original 3,000 members of that uh, expeditionary force um, that landed in the Himalayas and were uh, killed and captured. Um, so, given the understanding that as a spiritual being on this planet, you reincarnate and you and have it many bodies in many different lifetimes over a period of years, uh, the nurse would have continued living on Earth, as have apparently the other 3,000 members of the Domain Force that were captured by the old empire. That was so, my next question. If we had to do it on a, even if you want to consider a religious matter, reincarnate, as we say, we are spiritual beings having a physical experience. So that's what you're saying happened. So Matilda's being one of them. If there were 3,000 others, did she ever make contact with any other member of that expeditionary force who was killed at the time she was too? No, she didn't. But the, the domain expeditionary force themselves, shortly after their base had been destroyed and their members captured, uh, launched their own independent um, investigation into to try to discover what happened to that that base that was destroyed so there are several lengthy um, discussions in the context of the, the interview in the book where the pilot describes that uh, investigation subsequently which took period over a period of uh, several thousand years uh, and the domain was able to locate um, all 3,000 of the members of their lost uh, force, uh, and they were able to identify them by their electronic signature, so to speak. Uh, each spiritual being apparently has a kind of, um, you know, emanates an electronic or electrical aura of energy, um, which the Hindus have discussed for 10,000 years. Uh, 
through which uh, an individual person can be identified, provided you have the right uh, ability or the right equipment or whatever it is. So the the pilot discusses the investigation and the how the investigation was conducted, where, by whom, and so forth, um, in order to identify those members of the of the domain. What they discovered, long story short was that although they were able to identify and locate their lost 3,000 members of the domain, uh, they weren't able to actually establish communication with them, for the most part, or recover them uh, to active duty in the invasion force as long as they were inhabiting a biological body. So this led to the further discovery that Earth... Um, has for a very long time been being used as a prison planet by uh, an element of the old empire governmental body, uh, which is acting as a secret society. I apologize as- for interjecting, but I want to go step by step be- before leaving anything behind. I mean, this this is really fascinating what you're saying about the signature that we all have. Years ago, when I went to the East City Ranch, I've said this story many times, the first night we were all shook up by a Chinook helicopter that was flying. It looked to be 100, 200 feet from the ground. That's how close it was to these structures. And it felt like an earthquake. And when it came outside, they had red lighting inside of the Chinook helicopter. And one of the military men up there was pointing something at everybody down there, down where, where, where we were. And I was thinking in my mind, what could it be? And somebody told me they're looking for specific signatures in areas of people who are interested in this subject. And what you're saying is the same. Also, I've been told that what we see in airports, these X-ray machines are equipped also to determine this specific signature that you are referring to. Can you add something to what I'm saying? Well, all I know about it is is what I what the pilot says in the book. Um, she said that the domain forces that were sent out to search for um, the missing personnel were using a, a kind of an electronic detection device, uh, which she says was shown in pictures of Sumerian uh, wall carving and statuary, represented as kind of a leafy. You can see pictures these pictures all over the internet if you look at uh, the subject of Anunnaki. Um, Anunnaki, you mean? Anunnaki? Yeah, yeah, Anunnaki. I don't know. It's pronounced. Anu, Anunnaki? Anunnaki. If you look at pictures of what are supposed to be Anunnaki or ancient Sumerian civilization, there are pictures of um, uh, men with wings, um, and they're holding a, a kind of a purse or something in one hand, and in the other hand, they're holding a cone-shaped uh, thing that looks like a pine cone, and they're standing in front of... Um, a kind of a flowery, um, I don't know what you call it, a mandala, but it's made with, uh, it looks like leaves. Uh, and what the pilot says is that those were actual electronic detection devices, um, which transmitted and detected uh, uh, electrical frequencies of the individual ISBs for whom they were searching. The purse, the, what seems to be a person that appears. In many places. Is that what you're referring to? Apparently, yes. Okay. So, um, the, when you consider that the domain force uh, personnel don't inhabit biological bodies ordinarily, they use uh, various kinds of mechanical or artificially constructed bodies, they communicate telepathically, um, they're volunteers, they're not conscripted into this uh, invasion force, they come and go as they please. They've existed um, as immortal beings for forever. Um, civilization has existed for trillions of years. It doesn't seem a far stretch to me to assume that they're able to identify and communicate with each other um, telepathically, uh, just the way you know dogs smell each other with their noses or people recognize each other by sight or by the sign of a voice. Uh, there's not a lot of difference between identifying someone by the sound of their voice and identifying somebody with uh, uh, 
the, the electrical signature of their, their aura or whatever you want to call it. Um, so apparently that's, that's the basis for which the, um, the search was conducted and they were successful except to the degree that they weren't able to get through this barrier of, um, elements of, um, what she refers to as the prison planet. Um, that superimposes certain artificial barriers around uh, the spiritual being that prevents them from uh, being aware of or communicating with other beings who are not inhabiting the biological body. Are you implying more or less a firmament? A firmament? A firmament, a barrier? And this is my next question. When we think, did you ever ask her or did she ever write anything as to how a civilization that is more advanced than we are makes it all the way here from a place we can't even understand and crashes? Um, the only thing she says about that um, is that the crash occurred because the craft was struck by lightning um, and they, they crashed inadvertently. Apparently, as far as I know, other UFO crashes were allegedly caused by, by lightning, um, which would certainly disrupt the navigation capability of the, of the pilot if they're connected. But, uh, but you would think, Lawrence, that if they're so advanced and they're coming all the way here, they may have done some research, some uh, gather some intelligence as to what happens around us, our atmosphere, to prevent something like that from happening. Exactly. Uh, that seems very logical to me. Um, the nurse or the pilot doesn't mention anything about that specifically um, in, in the book. So your guess is better than mine. So what happened then? Oh, by the way, when you said that that force is an invasionary force, that has a, a hostile connotation, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, very much so. Um at least as regards the um, the military forces of the old empire. Um, she does discuss the old empire at some length throughout the, the book and identifies the old empire as a kind of um, uh, broken down totalitarian, uh, uh, perverted uh, civilization that's been around for a very, very long time and uh, maintains its civilization at a kind of level of a, of a totalitarian police state and considers anybody who is not a willing slave, who's willing to just to follow orders, do what they're told, go to work, pay their taxes, don't ask questions, um, mind their own business, anybody who doesn't fit that very tight mold of being a, a kind of a worker bee, so to speak, um, is um, considered to be undesirable. They're labeled as, uh, the word she uses un, is untouchable, similar to the Indian uh, word uh, to describe lepers. Right. Um, they're, they're considered to be untouchable and they're, they're uh, killed, their possessions are taken away, and they're, as a spiritual entity, sent um, across space and uh, put inside of the atmosphere of Earth and sent into biological bodies, which is part of the, the prison uh, system mechanism. Uh, obviously, being in a biological body is, is kind of a, a prison within a prison, so to speak, to the degree that in a biological body, we only, uh, as humans, we're only able to sense about one-tenth of one percent of the total electromag electromagnetic spectrum of the physical universe, which makes us virtually deaf and blind as far as perception and mobility are concerned. Uh, the body, when you compare it to other species of animals like you know, dolphins and uh, dogs and birds and so forth, human sensory capability is extraordinarily weak and limited. Um, so if you were going to put somebody in a prison, obviously you would want them to not be able to escape uh, easily, if ever. So a biological body inside uh, a heavy gravity 
dense atmosphere on a planet billions or trillions of miles away from your origin um, would serve the purpose very well. In addition to that, according to the the, uh, the pilot's description, um, uh, a human being, when they die and they depart the body as a spiritual entity, they're captured uh, by a force screen, um, which we'll get into a little bit more in detail later. Um, captured by a force screen, and their their memory is erased. They're given amnesia, they're, um, and their memories of their previous life are not only erased, but uh, replaced by false memories or other memories uh, or no memory at all. And then they're they're sent back. Uh, on a kind of a mission to inhabit a new body and told that they have a, a purpose for going back to Earth and accomplishing a, a new line of a new purpose or there's some goal that they need to accomplish. And that, that idea is fairly common in, in a number of different religions. Um, so that that's not new news. But the idea that um, all of that mechanism, the whole reincarnation mechanism, is a part of a much grander scheme to keep certain beings isolated from the rest of the civilizations of the physical universe and uh, to keep us captured and trapped forever without being able to uh, to escape and reintegrate into uh, other parts of the old empire civilizations. That That's a new an idea, at least it was a new idea to me. Uh, and to a lot of other people that communicate with me, uh, that kind of resonates with people. It sort of seems to make sense. It kind of adds up from a number of different points of view. Uh, it certainly does seem to fit the behavior of people on this planet uh, as a whole. Um, the Hindus and Buddhists have been talking about this sort of thing for a very, very long time. And in fact, their principal goal um, in, in their uh, practice of uh, um, meditation and so on and so forth, is to escape that imprisonment, to escape um, uh, not just from the biological body, but that continually recurring um, um, amnesia reincarnation mechanism that appears to go on forever and ever. Uh, One question about the invasionary force, as you call it, that was defeated by the old empire. So obviously, the, the way you were depicting them, they both seem to be negative, uh, hostile towards human or humans. Are they well, both? Um, are they both um, against humans? Uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that um, as a blanket statement. No, uh, the old empire is briefly described by the domain as being, uh, uh, you know, a degraded, rundown uh, civilization that's basically a totalitarian police state. Um, the domain, on the other hand, uh, you get the impression when you read the interviews and so forth, the domain has a much more egalitarian point of view. Um, they're each in, each member of the civilization is independent. They're autonomous. Um, they're not constricted conscripted into service. They can come and go as they please. They're immortal beings. They don't have amnesia. They don't lose their memory. They know who they are. They can either occupy a physical body or not at their discretion. Uh, they have a very high free will, freedom of choice. Is what you're saying? Freedom of choice. Uh, the, the domain force itself apparently has um, uh, members uh, joined for a period of not less than 5,000 years, and it's in no way obligatory. It's a voluntary activity, um, and they have, according to the pilot, a very, very high uh, esprit de corps. Um, they have a very high level of purpose for what they're doing. So I get the idea that they're 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 conquering this part of the physical universe, and perhaps eventually the entire physical universe, as a part of expanding the territory of the domain. And she says that Earth and 
adjoining areas of the galaxy and universe that they've conquered are, have now become uh, the property of the domain, and they have jurisdiction over it. What their intentions are for the use of that property, uh, she doesn't discuss, which obviously that would be a military secret, I'm sure, so she doesn't get into any detail about that. But I, I've never, and most people I talk to don't seem to have the idea that the domain is uh, adversarial toward humans. Uh, they're very wary um, of Earth and try to avoid contact with Earth to the degree that they now know that Earth is a prison planet and it's very dangerous, not just to the current Earth population, but anybody who enters into the atmosphere of Earth is uh, risk the potential of being being captured and made a part of the prison population here. So, uh, you know, understandably, they would want to stay away from it. A couple of questions about these two different civilizations. The old empire, it seems to me, as you are describing them, they were not a positive force on this planet. We don't know too much about them. But then the domain, as you said, free, free thinkers, free will, individuals, which are things that I personally like, but have they made any efforts to make contact with humans after that incident at Rod Roswell? And and this is going to be a left field question. I'm going to throw a left curve at, at you. Many people have contacted me saying, what we see in the skies, meaning chemtrails, might not be what we think it is. It's not only geoengineering, but I've been getting a lot of footage lately of Planes that disappear all of a sudden, almost like a glitch on a hologram, and you see a light, and then the plane reappears. Could there be a correlation between this force and what we see here? Perhaps terraforming. And folks, yes, I get, I get the, I get emails from people saying this Earth has been terraformed already. I mean, adapt to that new civilization in order to take over. Any thoughts on that? Well, I've never heard that idea before, but that certainly would be a lot more refreshing than what my understanding of chemtrails are, which is a global United Nations depopulation agenda. Um, um, certainly, if the chemical content of the of what's being sprayed on the human population is accurate, um, it's pretty much just toxic chemicals. It's where, you know, barium, aluminum, and then strontium, and metals, you name it, yes. I mean, those are all deadly poisons to human beings. Uh, I spent many, many years uh, working with uh, alternative healthcare practitioners and chiropractors and detoxification specialists, studying the area of uh, heavy metal detoxification, uh, autism, fibromyalgia, all of that sort of thing, in an attempt to discover ways to eliminate heavy metals from the tissues and the, the fat and organs of the body. Uh, so I know for sure that the chemicals being sprayed on us are, are highly toxic, and I can't imagine any other reason for spraying that except to intentionally murder people at a, at a relatively slow rate. But nevertheless, um, it's, it's deadly. Whether or not it has anything to do with affecting the weather, um, I doubt very much. Uh, maybe HARP has a lot to do with manipulating the weather. But... Um, you know, part of the problem these days, you know better than I do now, is trying to find any verifiable research or authentic research that can be substantiated factually rather than just by hearsay or conjecture is is very, very difficult, even with the Internet or maybe even because of the Internet. Um, so I don't know what to think. Uh, all I know is, as I say to people about this book, you have to do your own research. You have to inform yourself, you have to get educated, and you have to make your own decisions and your own judgments about it, because nobody else can tell you what to think. It's just another opinion. I, you know, People always ask me, what do you think about this book, and blah, 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 blah. I say, you know what, I have, an, I have my opinions. It's just one opinion. There's seven billion people in the world. Everybody has an opinion. Everybody should have an opinion. If you don't have an opinion, you're just being a robot. You're being a sheep, you know. So wake up. Come on. Get with the program and and dig in like so many of the rest of us and read and research and study and evaluate and make your own judgment. Wise words. And the old empire, are they still here? 
or they were they did they vanish from a conflict or what happened to them? Yeah. Well, the old empire, um, according to the the pilot, is uh, very very vast in extent. We're talking about a governmental um, agency, so to speak, that that uh, administered not only the entire Milky Way galaxy, but many adjoining galaxies, um, which represent a total of what could be about one quarter of the entire physical universe. So we're talking a really gigantic amount of space here. Uh, I don't know how you even quantify a quarter of the physical universe, but that's a lot of, lot, a lot, a lot of star systems. Um, so are they still here? Well, uh, who knows for sure, but the, the pilot said that they had succeeded in conquering the headquarters of the government for this galaxy, uh, based in the, and one of the sort of several of the stars in the, the tail of the Big Dipper. Um, and that subsequently during, uh, the, they discovered that the, the, um, the military, some military aspects of that government still exists throughout space and even in Earth solar system space, at least up until 1250 BC or AD rather, 1250 AD. Uh, once the domain discovered that the, the prison planet system existed here and that it was being, that it was set up and administered by the, uh, the old empire, they, uh, that was the beginning of a, a very active um, military combat between the old empire and the domain uh, forces in uh, Earth atmosphere and in Earth space and, and the solar system. Now, a lot of that is um, went on all through the uh, Egyptian period, especially, and thereafter all the way up until uh, 1250 uh, AD, uh, at which point the domain destroyed the last remaining remnant of the old empire space force in this area. Uh, and the pilot says at that point was a point at which there seemed to be a change uh, in the, the, uh, the force of the prison planet mechanism at that point. And there was an, actually the beginning, uh, the end of the Dark Ages and the beginning of what we call the Resident Renaissance began at that point because the, the, the mind control and the amnesia mechanisms um, used by the prison planet system were lessened to some degree uh, at the point at which that conquest occurred. Um, and, you know, when you read history, you realize that at the point of the, that point around uh, 1250 BC and thereafter is when a lot of uh, scientific um, and literary inventiveness started to come to light, um, some of which may be explained by the lessening of the amnesia, uh, the prison planet mechanism, some of which may be explained by um, what Plato referred to as, um, let's see, read this. Plato referred to um, anamnesis, spelled A-N-A-M-N-E-S-I-S, um, which is the phenomena that he thought that humans possessed an innate knowledge of a past prior to their birth, uh, and that all learning that people do subsequent to their, their birth is rediscovering the knowledge within themselves um, rather than learning something new. That idea would explain a lot of the, uh, particularly in Western civilization, a lot of the phenomena of um, sciences and mathematics and so forth being uh, so-called invented after 1250 AD, um, when a number of you know, very pivotal scientific breakthroughs took place. You know, Sir Isaac Newton, um, printing became, was reinvented or invented for the first time. It wasn't so much by Gutenberg in the 1400s. Uh, the influence of the Catholic Church and so forth beginning to, to diminish at that point. Um, 
a lot of other technical and humanitarian advances began to occur at that time. Um, Let me ask you this. When it comes to those you know the Renaissance and when we the, the, the Gutenberg press and so on. But let's go back thousands of years before that. In doing what I do, I've come to my conclusion. Again, this is just speculating my humble opinion. Looking at all all the megaliths around the world, even Easter Island and pyramids in Cambodia, in Egypt, in Mexico, in South America, you name it. It seems to be that they share some common traits, some common architecture which tells me that that civilization that existed thousands of years ago and had a lot of these things appear at the same time, the all of a sudden, something tells me that there must have been some harmony, some one world system that existed here at one point in our history where everybody got along. But something happened along the way, call it a flood, a cataclysm, fill in the blanks. Something happened that divided all of us created languages, cultures, countries, you name it. Do Does that appear at all in any of the interviews with Matilda? Yes, it, it actually does very specifically. The pilot, uh, in the process of describing the prison planet operation and how it was set up and how it operates and continues to operate, um, refers to all of the ancient, uh, the, the pre-Diluvian or ancient uh, megalithic civilizations around the, the world, uh, which are comprised of um, any of the pyramid civilizations in uh, South America, Latin America, uh, Mexico, China, Egypt, um, Europe. I mean, pyramids exist almost everywhere around the planet. And more are being discovered all the time. They've just done uh, scan, scans, flyover scans of the Amazon jungles and discovered hundreds of pyramids that are, that are hidden beneath the foliage. Or underwater. Or underwater, exactly. So they're, they're, these, these megalithic stone buildings are referred to by the pilot as the false facade civilizations. She uses that word specifically. She, and she says that those false facade civilizations were implanted intentionally by this, this element of the old empire civilization that established the prison planet. By the way, hold it right there because you have a lot to say about the false facade civilization. You have a lot to say about some of the guests who have been here and some of the additions uh, of research that they have done, the, the theory of human evolution on Earth is a lie. Uh, the Earth is a prison planet. We're going to discuss more of that. Uh, the Western science, uh, false time. I'm just looking at some of the titles. Amnesia, or as some people call it, catastrophobia. And one of the reasons why we have a defense mechanism to, re to forget all those things. But how can people learn more about your work, Lawrence, and buy the book and learn more about your most recent work? Well, you can, uh, probably the easiest way to, to find out more about the information that's come to me recently is to go to the YouTube channel for Learning Interview. You just go to YouTube and type Learning Interview or Lawrence R. Spencer and you'll find it there. Lots and lots of videos that I've posted over the years. Uh, made by some of the researchers we're going to be discussing later in the show uh, about these elements or elements of the discussion in the, the book transcripts. The other way is to go to the website for the book, which is alieninterview.org. Uh, lots and lots of uh, material posted on there over the last uh, eight or nine years that that site's existed. Um, all of the, the various versions of the book are available there, whether in print or PDF or audio books. Um, other, uh, other interviews that I've done over the years, uh, videos made about the subject and so forth, they're all contained on that website. That's probably the, the simplest. And it also has links to all the other material and related uh, information on that website, alieninterview.org. Let me read this very brief quote from the book, and we'll come back after the break. On the home planet of an Isby, their material possessions were not lost, stolen, or forgotten when the being died or left the body. An Isby could return and claim the possessions. 
However, if the Isbi has amnesia, they will not remember what they had, that they had any possession. So government, insurance companies, bankers, family members, and other vultures can pick their possessions clean with a fear of retribution from the deceased. A lot more when we come back. My special guest today is Lawrence Spencer discussing supplements of the alien interview with Matilda O'Donnell McElroy. This is Mel Fabregas and you are listening to Veritas. I'll see you in the member section. Thank you for listening to the first part of this very important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the members section or subscribe at VeritasRadio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for MMS, hemp oil, pure organic sulfur, and other great products. Thank you.